this morning, I get to launch us into a, a series that we are calling Ready or Not. And uh, this series is just a big Bible study for the next number of weeks as we work our way through the New Testament book of Second Peter. And I hope you're okay with a Bible study, and I trust that uh, you have no intention of staying the same, because warning, and don't say I didn't warn you, the Word of God will change you. So if you had intentions of staying the same over the next number of weeks, I just um, want to just give you fair warning. And uh, so we're looking forward to working our way through um, this New Testament book. And in order to get a heart of this book, I actually want to read a pretty intense section of scripture uh, from the middle of the book to give us some sense. This is a linchpin passage in this book. And uh, I'm going to read this out uh, to you and then we'll start at the beginning. But this is Second Peter. And uh, this verse is found in chapter 3 and verse 10. And here's what it says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. This was 2,000 years ago, and you can sense the urgency in the words that were penned. And I can't imagine how much more urgently uh, Peter would speak if he were writing to us 20 some odd decades later talking about what it is to be ready for the day of the Lord. If a day like this is coming where God will expose and judge everything what kinds of lives ought we to live? And Peter is saying we ought to live lives that are getting ready for this. We ought to live lives that are not acting like life is just going to go on and will continue to be like this perpetually. No, there is a day coming where God will expose everything and will judge all things. And we ought to live life ready. And the reality is there are only going to be two categories of people. Those who were ready or those who were not. And the only question is in which category will we fall? And so Second Peter is just this beautiful invitation to prepare. It's this beautiful invitation to get ready for the inevitable day of the Lord. If you have a copy of the scriptures, meet me there. Second Peter chapter one. Uh, Second Peter will be towards the back of your Bible. You're going to find it right after First Peter, uh, interestingly enough, but uh, <laughs> man, I am so helpful already. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, by the way, would love to get a copy into your hands. At the end of the service, you can go to the Connection Corner. That's like our one-stop shop, y'all. Um, we would love to give you um, the Word of God in physical form as our gift to you. Second Peter chapter 1. And here's how it begins. Simon Peter, 
a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you probably guessed it because you're also uh, biblically astute. I can tell that already. But here's the evidence you needed just to confirm what you already knew. Second Peter was a letter written by Peter. Uh, Simon Peter, a man we learned a little bit about last week as we wrapped up our flawed series, a a fisherman by trade, one of the very first people Jesus called to follow after him. Uh, A man who wouldn't just follow after Jesus, but would become one of Jesus' closest friends and would belong to a very small inner circle of three people. Peter, a man who would be marked by a fierce faith, a man who would experience a fierce failure in his life. Peter, a man who would experience the fierce forgiveness of Jesus Christ, who would restore him to himself, but not only that, would then install him as the leader of leaders in the first church in the New Testament. That Peter. He's now an old man and he's living most likely in Rome under the constant threat of persecution. In fact, he has the sense, we'll see that as we read through this letter, he has the sense that his days are numbered. And so in the final days of his life, he decides to pen a number of letters figuring my words will travel further than I can, and they will last longer than my life will. We don't know how many letters he writes, but we have at least access to two of those, this one being the second. And when Peter introduces himself, he starts the book by saying, hey, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word he uses is stronger than that. He says, I am a slave to Jesus which is so interesting, a man who struggled with pride in his journey with Jesus. And the first thing he wants his readers to know, my rights are dead. My life is his. I live to do what Jesus says and assigns. And one of the things he's assigned me to is to be a spokesperson on his behalf. He not only wants them to know that he's a servant, he wants them to know that he is an apostle. And one of the tasks of the apostles was to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that, hey, listen, what comes next is not just some game of Simon Peter says. No, I am speaking on behalf of my master, Jesus Christ himself. These are essentially his words. And then he talks about who it is he is writing to. The second part of verse 1, he says, I'm writing to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, while his immediate recipients were Gentiles in what is modern-day Turkey, uh, his words apply to all Christians through the ages. Anyone who has put their faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And um, and then Peter 
knowing that he's about to say some pretty hard, some pretty stretching, some pretty challenging things. And let me just say this to you as a matter of warning, church, that this book is going to stretch us. It's going to say some pretty hard things. And Peter knows that. And because he knows that, he starts the letter by speaking these beautiful words of affirmation over these followers of Jesus Christ. He starts by telling them, hey, God calls you righteous. Can I just remind you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God calls you righteous. Every time he looks at you, he smiles. Because every time he looks at you, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And and, and God had every right and God had every reason to condemn you forever because of your sin. But instead of giving you his wrath, he gave you his righteousness and this glorious exchange. And here's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, God... This is so good. Made him, Jesus, who had no sin, never sinned, to be sin for us. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And and Peter starts by reminding his readers of this truth. Now when God looks at you, he smiles, not because of anything you've done. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't cut it. He smiles because when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And can I just remind you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't this true about you. You couldn't keep God's standard of perfection, no matter how hard you may have tried. So Jesus subbed in and gave you his righteousness. And uh, one of the beautiful reasons, by the way, Peter's reminding his readers of this is because the majority of his readers are Gentiles. And these Gentiles grew up in a world where they were constantly reminded, you are spiritually inferior. You are not good enough. And, you know, listen, God doesn't love you like he loves us, the Jews. We are his special. We are his chosen people. You have no access to him. You are outsiders. And if you're going to have any access to him, you have to jump through these special hoops and you've got to do all of these extra things. They were told all their lives that they don't belong. And so Peter starts this letter by saying, hey, as a spokesperson for Jesus Christ, let me assure you, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, God fully and completely accepts you. And he says, hey, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and your faith is as good as our faith, there is no such a thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom or the family of God. What a beautiful affirmation to these so-called outsiders. Your faith is as genuine and as precious as ours. And so he tells him, so go ahead and enjoy his grace in abundance, he says. Grace to you. You are fully accepted by God. Go ahead and dance on that. And he says, and go ahead and enjoy his peace. God holds nothing against you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I don't know, by the way, who needs that reminder in this space this morning. But it doesn't matter what your skin color is. 
doesn't matter what your family background is, how jacked up or dysfunctional it might have been. It doesn't matter how late you've come to Christianity. It doesn't matter how many snooty Christians in the church make you feel like you're an outsider because you don't know what they knew growing up, etc., etc. It doesn't matter what anybody else has said about you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's good enough for God. You are fully accepted. You fully belong to the family of God. No matter what anybody else has ever spoken or said over you. And Peter, if he were here, would tell you, go ahead and dance on that grace. And a quick reminder, God holds nothing against you because of what Jesus Christ has done. Enjoy his peace. Then Peter uh, takes things a, a step further. He just pours more assurance on his readers. In verse 3, if you've never seen this verse, just brace yourself for this. He says, oh, and his divine power has given us everything we need for our godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Woo! I don't know if you knew that. Jesus' righteousness has provided everything you need for you to be fully accepted by God. And then he says, but Jesus' power has also provided everything you need for you to now live acceptably before God. I don't know if you knew that. There is nothing that you need to live A life like Jesus, there is nothing that you need to live a life after Jesus. There is nothing that you need to live a life of victory and freedom. There is nothing that you need to live a life of obedience to God that Jesus hasn't given you by his power. I don't know if you've ever read this before. Memorize this verse, circle it. Highlighted whatever your conscience allows you to do to your Bible. This is a great verse of scripture. He has given you everything you need to live victoriously, to live a godly life. Can we just for a quick second stop living in spiritual scarcity? Like we are scraping the bottom. And we're just trying to barely make it. And man, we're perpetuating the lie that I cannot quit that thing. We're perpetuating the lie that I have to give in to that thing. We're perpetuating the lie that I just just can't. And Peter would say, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Maybe you haven't heard. His power has given you everything that you need. Stop buying the lie that I can never change and it will always be like this. My dad was like this. My siblings are like this. This is just my lot in life. No, the power that raised Jesus from the dead has given you everything you need for victory and abundance and obedience. And by the way, if that is true, church, you are not an exception. He didn't run out of power when he saved you. And if you're not an exception, then you can't make excuses. And that's what we're going to see as we study this book. 
Defeat is not your destiny. That's not your portion on account of what Jesus Christ has given you. But let me say really quickly, this is not just an encouraging word for us. This is a challenging word. This right here is what I think of as the often forgotten second half of the gospel. The power and the beauty of the gospel is not just that I have the righteousness of Christ. It's that I can and must now live the righteousness of Christ. I think we settle so quickly like, oh, I have the righteousness of Christ. That's a wrap. And he says, no, but his power has given you everything you need to now actually live out righteousness. There is a second half to this equation that I think we often forget. God doesn't just call me righteous. He then calls me to live righteously. And you notice that the way I take a hold of the one is the exact same way I take a hold of the other. It's Jesus. All in all, it's Jesus. If I'm going to stand acceptable before God, it's not in my own righteousness, it's Jesus. And yet it's this same Jesus who gives me the power to now live righteously before God. It's all Jesus, and I love that, Peter expresses that by using this term. It's his divine power has given us everything we need through our knowledge of Jesus. Jesus, everything I need comes through my knowledge of him. And when he uses this word, by the way, he's not using knowledge intellectually about gaining more information about Jesus. He's using this word relationally in, in, in speaking about my connection by faith to Jesus, my relationship to Jesus. That's how I'm righteous before God, but that's also how I get the power I need to live righteously before God. Um, then Peter essentially reframes the same thought in a more vivid way. This is powerful, verse 4. He says, through these, his glory and goodness, that is, he has given us his very great and precious promises. He just keeps on giving. I just, I don't know if you knew how generous our God is with his people, but he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you might participate in the divine nature. Mm, mm, mm. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Wow. He said, so that you may participate in the divine nature. This is powerful that God has made promise after promise, after promise, after promise that we can share. We can begin to share in his divine nature, that we can begin to share in his holiness, that we can begin to somehow experience his glory. This is so powerful. I don't fully understand all that this means, but I understand enough to believe that this invitation is not to just live victoriously over sin in obedience. That's not the goal. That this invitation is to somehow get an invitation 
into the inner circle of God, where I start to share in the God stuff and gaze somehow on his face and interact with his glory and share in his holiness. I don't fully understand this, but here's what I know. For so many of us, (laughs) we have become so content with, oh, he saved me. And Peter will be like, that's awesome. You are fully accepted. That's great, but that's just the beginning. And then some of us graduate to, oh, now I figured out a way to sin less. Oh, that's awesome too. But that was never actually the goal. The goal was so you can start to participate in the divine nature and interact with the face of God and his glory. It is so much more beautiful than you ever thought. This is so powerful. What an amazing reminder to us. I just think about about the story of Moses in the Old Testament where he goes up on a mountain and he hangs out with God for a few days. And then when he comes back down, (laughs) the Israelites are freaking out because his face has the afterglow of the glory of God. Moses ends up having to veil his face so they don't freak out as much. I'm just saying this city is not going to be transformed by a bunch of people who talk about Jesus. It's going to be transformed by a bunch of people who are hanging out with Jesus and something of his glory and something of his holiness is exuding off the church. All of a sudden, yeah, devils have to run. We get that. The darkness has to hide. We get that, not because of who we are, but because of who we've been hanging out with. There is such a glorious invitation in Christianity that goes so much further than I got saved, and now I'm struggling with sin a little less. The enemy wouldn't mind if the extent of our faith was, man, I'm, I'm doing a few fewer bad things than I used to do before. And he would say, no, there's promise after promise after promise that says, come on up higher. Come on up higher. I don't know about the house you grew up in, but the house I grew up in, whenever my parents would have their friends over, we would get to the point in the evening where we would hear them say, like, all right, kids, get out of the house. Go play with rocks outside. It's uh, the adults need to talk in the living room. And then we'd go out. I don't know if your parents were like that. Report mine. Um, But... I love this passage that God doesn't do that to us. He's like, hey, God, uh, we're talking up here. Come on in. Come and be a part of this inner circle thing that's happening here. This is such a glorious invitation. I think we've been settling for just being saved. Maybe. For a little too long. Verse 5 says, for this very reason, if this invitation is on the table, if these promises are on the table, if this power is on the table, Peter would say, then make every effort to add to your faith. And the truth is, I think for many of us, we've been very content to just sit on our faith. We have faith. And Peter would say, no, there is so much more to be experienced. And if that is true, then make every effort to add to your faith. 
and, and he almost takes a turn, and, and then he just starts to speak in some of the most practical ways. And I love that, that this faith of ours is glorious, and then it's so simple and so practical in so many regards. But he's saying, hey, because God has given us everything we need to live like Jesus and look like God, the only appropriate response is to make every effort to go after it. Do not be content to know you have promises and you have power. He would say, go after it. And when he says add to your faith, he's not saying Jesus hasn't done enough. He is simply saying you're going to want to build on the foundation that Jesus Christ has laid. There is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. But if you want to experience victory and beyond that experience the glory of God, for that you're going to have to work. That's why, by the way, there's some in our world who exude the glory of God, and there's some who don't. That's why there's some in our church who are experiencing increasing victory and Christ-likeness. And there's some who are not. Um, Peter would say, God has laid the foundation for all of us who know Jesus with his righteousness and his power and his promises. Again, the difference is some of us sit on the foundation and others of us build on it. And the question is, which are you? Are you a sitter or a builder? Um, we have everything we need. Now we need to work at it. Um, here's what Peter then says as he turns to the practical. Look again at verse 5. Towards the end, he says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Goodness. He just becomes so practical. You want to experience this? You want to build on your faith? You want to live like Jesus and, and start to look like and interact with the glory of God? He says then, Practice goodness. Make every effort to do the right thing. That's what that word means. Make every effort to do, in fact, I would say the rightest thing. It is not easy to do the right thing, y'all. It takes work. That's why he says make every effort. Especially... In the moments and the spaces where I believe no one is watching. I can be pretty well behaved in public for you all, but it takes work to do the right thing, especially when I believe no one sees me. This is not easy, Um, but you have the power. Now, here's the thing. When I think about doing the right thing, do you know what I think about? And I suspect I'm not the only one. I tend to think about these big, epic decisions in my life. I think about these big, epic, moral choices. If I were faced 
with this major decision in my life, I think I would do the right thing. Right? We go to these exaggerated extremes. If I were asked to rob my company of all of its money, I would say no in the name of Jesus. That's what we tend to think about. But the effort is actually in the small things. You may have heard the devil is in the details. If I'm going to live like Jesus and start to to look like him, I have to be vigilant about the things I so often treat like they're no big deal. So I don't make an effort. I mean, it's just a quick text while I drive. say and it's so bad for me these days by the way because (laughs) i have like the holy spirit in my phone so every time i pick up my phone while i'm in the car it asks me promise 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 that you're not driving right now and i'm like oh but i am driving i can't push up no Let me tell you two things I've done just to get it off my chest. One of the things I would do is I will be driving and I will literally make my son an accomplice. Push, you're not driving because you're not driving. (laughs) Just say, that's one thing. Melissa, you know it's true. You've seen me do it. And you let me get away with it too. Um, The other thing I would do sometimes, I'm just being honest, is (laughs) I've done this true story. I'm driving down the road. I will grab my phone. I will lift my feet off the pedals and my hands off the steering wheel. I'm not driving, and then I'll go back to it. Right? I'm just telling you. Because, no, I've got a text. It is so important. Well, then pull over. No. Do you know how much effort it takes to pull over? That's the point. Make every effort. It takes effort. The thought that I'm just going to somehow do this, you know, naturally and instinctively, and it's going to be... No, it's going to take effort because I'm watching this show. And um, there is nothing even remotely appropriate about what's happening right now. But... I've heard that the plot line eventually has a redemptive element to it. So therefore, and Peter would say, make every effort to do the rightest thing. So do you know, if, if we started being that nitpicky with our lives, if we started making that much effort there wouldn't be very much who would be able to watch. Do you know how hard that would be? That everything we watch stars Kirk Cameron? I can't live like this. I can't do it, right? It's not easy. I told my kids, like, hey, I'll come outside and play with you in a couple of minutes, okay? And then a couple of minutes go by. And I'm like, I hope they forgot that I said that. Let me look out the window to see. Yeah, looks like they're having a good time like they forgot. 
So I'm going to go ahead and do what I was doing. And he would say, no, make every effort to do the rightest thing in those smallest moments where you're in the grocery store and you saw her and you chatted for 25 seconds and you said, girl, we should get together for lunch. You are lying. You have no desire or interest in getting together with her for lunch. But it was the quickest way to end that conversation. That's not the right thing, right? He is talking about the smallest things. And I'm telling you, church, we've gone to the place where we're like, well, that's not a big deal. Ask us about the big issues and we wonder why (laughs) we don't find ourselves moving in some of the directions that Peter says we have the power and the promises My son and I were reading something about basketball just yesterday, and I was talking about different basketball players, and I was saying a bad bad player um, makes a lot of effort for very little. An average player makes a lot of effort for the games, or they show up for the games. A good player makes a lot of effort for practice and the games. And then it said, and a great player makes every effort in diet, in sleep habits, in schoolwork, in personal workouts. And it went down, down this whole list, and that was the point, that the great player actually pays attention and makes every effort in the smallest of things, not just when the lights are on in the big game. And I wonder what Peter would say to us about that. Church, do the right thing, even in the smallest moments. And we wonder why it's like we're just average Christians. Because we make every effort at church. And that's it. It's like, what about the rest of it? What about when you rise? And what about when you sit? And what about when your kids are playing? And what about when you're in your car driving? What about? And he would say, make every effort. And if we're going to do this, by the way, I would encourage you, accountability is going to be a big piece. Um, people in your world who can ask you and be honest with you about your life. And he carries on and adds to you goodness, knowledge. Knowledge, practice knowledge, make every effort to know the right things. Before, when Peter was speaking about knowledge, he was speaking about it relationally, but now he's speaking about knowledge intellectually. He's speaking about uh, knowing information. Um, Make every effort to know the right things. Make every effort to know what is ultimately right, what is ultimately right true because if i don't know the right things how can i grow to do the right things so he would say add knowledge and church as we'll see in this series there is such a thing as the right thing there is such a thing as a moral compass. There is such a thing as true north. There is such a thing as a standard that determines right and wrong for everybody. There is such a standard and it is not how you feel. 
That's not the standard. It's not about what's trending and what the majority thinks. It's not what your political party espouses. It's what Jesus says is the right thing. Jesus is true north. And if we're going to navigate our lives to live like him, we have to know what he says is the right thing and align according to his compass. There is no living like Jesus unless I know what he says is true. Make every effort to know the right thing. Make every effort to know the words of Jesus. Otherwise, I will wing it, I will take polls, and I'll ask my friends, and I will end up looking like everyone else, which is what I fear has happened to the church. We look like everyone else. No one is veiling, no one is freaking out. Where have you guys been? You look strange. Glory. Because we've been taking polls and going along with whatever is trending. Question is, are you making every effort to know what Jesus says is true? Are you making every effort to get to know his compass, his word, so you can navigate your life towards it? Man, I just, I I will be so ashamed of how much more effort I make to meditate on your Instagram pictures than on the word of God. I'm just saying, like, I was thinking about this. Not like as an oh, illustration, like, really. Like, how much more time I, I spend doing that? How much more time I spend on words with friends than the word of God? Just say. Um. And we've never lived in an era where the word of God is more accessible. I'm just thinking like, when do I pick up my phone and I'm like, man, I have a couple of quick moments. Let me see what the Lord has to say. A couple of quick verses, sneak them in and arm for where I'm going. No. My propensity is to pick it up and look at what everyone else is doing and what everyone else is thinking, what everyone else ate for dinner. It's not even cute, but I look at it anyway. And Peter would say, you have too many promises not to constantly be revisiting and re-engaging the right thing and what Jesus has to say. And I'm just asking, are you making every effort to know the word of God? And if you're going to do that, you need a plan. And the beauty of it is we live in a context now where you have as many plans as you need in your device. The question is, am I willing to not hit snooze when it reminds me, hey, it's time to engage and work this plan? In verse 6, he says, and adds to knowledge, self-control, self-control. Make every effort to master your desires. This is about how we handle our strongest inner desire for pleasure, how we deal with the urge for quick satisfaction, food, drink, sex, entertainment. Those tend to be some of the big players in this conversation. And please hear me say, in this section, Peter's point is not the sinfulness of those activities. His point is the slavery of the actors. 
self-control, he's not talking necessarily about how sinful these things are. He's asking the question, are you the boss of your desire for pleasure or is your desire for pleasure the boss of you? And self-control is the ability to say no to my impulses and say yes when it's appropriate and when it's the right thing. And he says, make every effort to add to your knowledge self-control. Can I say no? And I'm telling you, we are living in a cultural time right now where we are losing the battle against self-control. Like, just try it. Just give yourself a test. Put your cell phone on a table and see how long before you start to get the shakes. I've got to see. I know FOMO. I'm missing something right now. And we are just giving in to the quickest impulse. And, and now we can stream and we can cue and we can pick up. And every impulse we just give into so quickly. And Peter would say, are you a slave as our brother spoke about earlier? Or are you living in the freedom of being able to say no to my impulses? And yes to my impulses as it is appropriate. If I'm going to live like Jesus and look like him, I must work hard to master my desires like Jesus did. This is not easy, but there is power. Is there a place? Are there places in your life where you cannot say no? And one of the ways to grow in this, to make the effort, is what you hear us talk about often is fasting. If there's an area, one of the ways to, I want to make the effort, Jesus, you are so worth it to me. I want to make the effort it is fasting. Like try a Sunday afternoon where you fast from watching football. And some of us, if we're honest, in this room would say, I could, mm, no, no. And what we'll say is, no, I can, I can stop if I want. Try it then. Leave your laptop at work. Try it. Well, I have emails. Try it if that's an issue. Go a, a week without the gram. Just try it. The shakes will go away. And what you get in exchange is you start to find yourself moving towards Jesus as you make every effort. The thought that we will grow in self-control and it's going to be easy. No, that's why we have to make the effort. The question is, are you willing to make it? And for some of us, we get to this place where, no, I'm not willing to try that. So I'm going to just sit on the floor of faith. And then he goes on. And to self-control, add perseverance. Perseverance. Practice perseverance. Perseverance is the idea of staying the course. It's the idea of doing the right thing after you take a hit. I know what the truth of Jesus said, and so I did the right thing, and I took a blow for it, and I continued to do the right thing. And let me just say this, church. If you actually practice goodness, if you actually practice doing the right thing in this culture, 
you will take a hit. I promise. I fear that for many of us, we don't get down to this place of perseverance in this list. Do you know why? Because all of our amens are about doing the right thing. I'm still there. But the minute I start to do the right thing and I start to say what Jesus says and I start to, to, you will take a hit. And for some of us, that's just called parenting. Try and raise your kids according to what Jesus says in this culture. And tell me how that goes. You would take a hit daily. You will be the least cool parent ever. And and no one else does this. And you're ridiculous. And you hate me. And I maybe hate you even. Try and do the right thing. Man, I heard about one of our middle schoolers who this past week was at school um, and interacting with a group. And they just started using some of the most vile language. And so she said, middle schooler, she said, please stop. Ask them to stop. And they mockingly asked her, oh, are you a Christian or something? And she said, yep, yes, I am. And amen to that. And they mocked her some more for it. And she stood on that ground. And I even asked, like, so is she not wanting to go to school? No, she's going back to school. I'm like, what? What is the Lord sparking in this generation? And what shame that is to many of us who you will go to your workplace and your workmates will be talking about that girl in such disparaging ways or that race in those disparaging ways. And you're like, ha, 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 those silly co-workers. You never have to take a hit because you avoid doing the right thing. But if you do the right thing, you are going to take a hit. The question of perseverance is, is, can I take a hit on account of doing the right thing and continue to go? I experienced some pain, but I didn't quit saying the right thing about the mistreated. Yeah, he broke up with me, but I stayed on course. I'm not compromising what Jesus said is the right thing with my body. So I kept on going. Yeah, they unfriended me, but I still refused to go to those places as I know exactly what happens in in those places. And then more people unfriended me, and I continued to go after Jesus. They ridiculed me as old-fashioned, but I continued to say what I believe the Bible says about marriage. Can you take a hit and continue to do the right thing. Yeah, foster care got super inconvenient, but I know what he called me to, and I kept going. Can you take a hit and keep going? And it takes effort. And if you're going to be successful in this, you're going to need community. You're going to need people around you, and people around you who don't baby you, because you experience a little bit of turbulence. They're like, oh, well, you better stop doing that thing. You need people around you who will tell you Jesus is worth it. And the glory of God is so well worth it. Persevere. Keep doing the right thing. You need some people like that in your life. I think we've made each other soft by saying we are a safe place where you can come and you can talk about what's hard. And then we tell you like, well, there's the exit door. We need a movement of people who are reminding each other there is the king of kings. And let's keep going after him. Let's keep going after him even when it's difficult. Can you take a hit and continue 
to go. And then he says, add to your perseverance godliness. Make every effort to please God. And this can be treated as uh, I mean, a catch-all phrase for the things he's just said, but it really focuses on my internal behaviors. The things I do with my mind and emotions is this attitude towards people pleasing to God. Is this feeling I'm fostering every time I read those articles on the news? Is this feeling fostering godliness? Is this pleasing to God? Are my thoughts about my boss godlike? Because sometimes we can start to do the right things and we completely miss our thought and attitude life as if God didn't redeem that and God doesn't give us power for that and God doesn't care about a sound mind. No, but this is about bringing my thoughts, feelings, and attitudes before the word of God and asking, is the behavior behind the veil pleasing to God? This is not easy. It takes effort. Am I letting these negative thoughts foster Or am I submitting them to the right things of God's word? This is such a great prayer to pray on a regular basis. Psalm 119, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, what's happening behind the scenes. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me. In the way everlasting. What a great prayer to just pray on a regular basis, especially when you're coming to read his word. Just search me. Is this stuff in my attitude and in my feelings and thoughts that isn't pleasing to you? It takes effort, and that's a great way to go after that. And then verse 7, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. Mutual affection and love is this um, pairing that talks about showing active concern for people. Showing active concern. Um, it's a love that affects my heart, but also affects my hands. I care about your well-being, but I show it in acting for your benefit. Because listen, if I care about you, but I don't do anything for your benefit, that's incomplete. That's bless your heart love, right? If I do a bunch of things for you, For your benefit, but I don't care anything about you and your story and your wounds and your hurt and who you are. That's incomplete too. These terms are marrying the idea is I care about you and I act for your well-being. And Peter would say, let's be people who are working hard at this. Make every effort to care for others in a way that... And if you want to grow in this, I'd encourage you to serve. Find an area in the church and serve. Find an area at your school or your kid's school and serve. Find an area in your home and serve your family. Because it's as you serve, you not only benefit the people around you, but you start to, Lord willing, get to know some of their stories and who they are and find yourself caring more for them. And we continue to say we're super busy. That's a lame excuse. If you are busy, then I'd encourage you serve in the places where you are most busy. But serve, because this love thing is not an option. It takes effort. That's why he says make every effort to show a caring and loving concern that's active for the people around you. And then Peter closes by giving some chilling words to this section. 
Now, I realize that this may end on somewhat of a, a heavy note, um, but uh, it's not intended to be heavy. It's intended to be incredibly hopeful. This is what he says in verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, if you are seeing evidence of these things in your life more and more, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ because some of us are ineffective and unproductive. We've stayed where we were 15 years ago. We've not built anything. He says, verse 9, but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. They've willfully forgotten that they've been cleansed from their past sins. They've forgotten that God calls them righteous and that doesn't matter to them because, you know, for some reason that's enough and they become really comfortable in that. Verse 10, therefore, these are the strong words. My brothers and sisters make every effort to confirm, to make sure of your calling and your election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you make every effort to see these traits in your life more and more and more, he says, you can be sure there will be a welcome for you when you get to heaven. If you don't, Make the effort and you don't see more self-control and you don't see more godliness and you don't see more concern for others showing up in your life. He would say you have reason to be concerned that you've either lost your spiritual sight and you've lost sight of the fact that God in Jesus has forgiven you or your faith was not legit. If you are not seeing these evidences in your life, he would say you have reason to wonder, have you really, though, put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ? Because the most authentic faith builds. The most authentic faith grows. The most authentic faith shows fruit. And Jesus says that by their fruit, you shall know them. If you've been this tree claiming to be planted in the faith of Jesus Christ, but you are bearing no fruit... Peter would say, are you sure? Because I don't see it. Do you see it in increasing measure? And the answer to that is not to panic. The answer to that is to make sure. The answer to that is to make every effort. The answer to that is to say, Lord, I want to stand on your power and your promises and start to build. The answer to this is to actually make the effort. Because, men, I rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if the finished work of Jesus Christ isn't producing anything in me, then I have to start to ask, was it really the work of Jesus Christ? And that is one of the most difficult questions to ask ourselves. And yet, here's this beautiful invitation. You have promises and you have power. Now build on those and you will start to see evidences in keeping with your calling 
and your election. And we're going to continue to see that as we work our way through this. And my trust is that as we work our way through this book, we will be a movement that is so assured of our faith. Not just because of what we say we believe, but because of what we see showing up in our lives. And my hope beyond that is that we'll start to experience the glory of God. And we exist to show and share the love of Jesus. Our hope is that beyond these walls, our county will be changed by a movement that is getting to know and look like it's God. And so, Father, I pray that you would empower us. And I pray that you would give us grace to make the effort to build on what Jesus has done. He has made every effort on our behalf. Give us your power to make effort in his direction. It's in his name we pray. Amen.